On today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, I get to talk to Maha Belli about collaboration. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Hello, this is Bonnie Stahoviak, and you might have heard today's guest's name before. She is prolific on Twitter. She is a wonderful blogger. She is a phenomenal collaborator, which is the topic of today's episode. And she's the winner of the first annual Manure Award. (laughs) And I'm so excited to be able to talk to her today. Today's guest is Dr. Maha Bali. And she's an associate professor of practice at the Center for Learning and Teaching at the American University in Cairo. And she's a full-time faculty developer and also teaches courses. She'll share a little bit about that in today's episode. And it's just such an honor to have her on the show today. Maha, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you, Bonnie, for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You know, I have been looking forward to it for a while. We mentioned your name because you are the big winner of the first annual Manure Award. (laughs) (laughs) I am so proud of that. And a guy, Nick, who teaches in the Middle East wanted me to start the episode by telling you congratulations for that. And he enjoyed hearing your story. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking today about collaboration. And one of the things I'd love to hear from you is what is an early memory of powerful collaboration that you have, whether that's from your childhood or even early in your career? Mm. It's funny because the first one that comes to mind was related to Valentine's Day at my high school. And maybe that's because there was a digital pedagogy chat about love recently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in my school, we had, for Valentine's Day, we do this thing where instead of each student getting their own flowers, we would organize it so that we would get orders for flowers, what kind of flower, what color flowers. So I had like roses and carnations and white and red. And people would say what kind of flower they wanted and who they wanted it to go to and whether they wanted to be anonymous or if they wanted to leave a note. And one of my friends used to do it before, and then he graduated, and it was my turn. I decided to do it. And I remember very well that to get that happening, a lot of people pitched in to help me at different stages of the process, including getting the orders and then putting the flowers in the right place and then distributing them the morning of Valentine's Day and making sure they got to the right place. Yeah, and that that was (laughs) collaboration. And my parents collaborated too, like driving us around to go and get the flowers and to and from school and stuff. It must have been quite a team there coming together around those flowers. What are some of the things that you think when you think about collaboration? And because of course, this is something that is integral to your work and something that you promote and instill and teach Mm -hmm. and encourage. What are the most common things that you observe that hold people back from being good at it? Oh, what holds people from being good at it? That's a good question. There are several, I guess. One thing is definitely power and hierarchy. 
So what I found, because, you know, I'm very well known for being very good at virtual collaboration. And the reason I think virtual collaboration works really well is that there's usually no hierarchy between you and the person that you're working with virtually because they're not your boss. They're not, they're not competing with you for a job. You know, we're just two people interested in the same thing and working together and it's good for both of us and we don't need to really worry about that. There are power differences definitely in a lot of different ways like whose language is more dominant who's more known in the universe <laughs> and that kind of thing but the that hierarchy type of thing gets in the way of trying to collaborate with people who are with me face to face for example and I still do but you know these things get in the way a lot more and the other thing is I think letting yourself go and letting yourself give I don't think all people have the same willingness to open up themselves when they're collaborating with someone you know, to, to give everything they can into that collaboration. And then I think, of course, all kinds of misunderstandings, you know, when you're working with somebody, people want to work in different ways or they want to prioritize different things and they don't always know how to express them or to, you know, yeah, they don't always realize that they need to be explicit about certain things. So for example, this is something I talk about a lot, working on Google Docs with people, which I love doing. Sometimes you just need to let people know in advance that if we're going to work in this document, what, did it, what does it mean to resolve a comment? Because, and this is a gender dynamic, that usually women, you know, if you start a comment and you start having discussions about it, usually men are very happy to just go and resolve the comment without going back to the original person who made the comment. I'm generalizing here, but I've had some experience with, with men who do that. And women are usually much more careful about that. Are you done? Can I resolve the comment? You know, uh, you know, whatever it is you're working on, there's certain sort of norms that you, if you're not, if you haven't worked with that person or that group of people a lot in advance, then you could have problems with that kind of thing. One of the articles I've got on hybrid pedagogy with the RISO 14 group is called Writing the Unreadable Untext. And that was what we call swarm writing, where everybody goes in and does everything, and that's playful, and that's the way it's supposed to be. But when you're writing the article that's going to get published, then then people have different expectations of what's going to happen and how they're going to do it, and it it can get really people can get really offended by by how someone edits their text or or changes the direction of what they're working on. And it's just one of those things that if you don't talk to someone when you're talking when you're working with a new team, you need to talk about it again um, and things like that. I would imagine that that is particularly so for those who had trouble in the first place, letting themselves go and letting themselves give, then, then that makes it that much harder because I took this risk and see, it didn't work. And now I'm back into my shell, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, you just reminded me of one of the most beautiful collaborations I've ever been part of. It's um, at the beginning of the RISO 15 MOOC, um, just in case people don't know what these RISO things are, these are rhizomatic learning MOOCs that were led by Dave Cormier. And the way he leads them is to, to give very little content from his side where everything, almost everything comes from participants with very little guidance from him. And so there was one week where Tanya Sheko from Australia wrote something on her blog um, responding to a prompt by Dave. Um, as a, she wrote it as a play. And then we, a group of us went and we put that into a Google Doc and we hacked it and we added more characters to it and then we made it into a podcast and it's on SoundCloud. And I can give you the link at the end of this. And so what we ended up doing is that we, have, we added characters. We had different characters speaking different languages. Each person chose a character. Uh, it, the, the, 
the story has inner voice and we made her and she said she is multiple and that's part of rhizomatic learning and so the multiple had different names and they were different people with different voices and that's how we did the the podcast right and then putting someone put it all together I think it was Kevin Hodgson who put it all together and then when that collaboration happened all of us were like really really excited about it but then one other person said how she would feel if someone took a piece of her work and did that and she would be offended and it was very interesting because we know Tanya well and we didn't think she would be offended. But but then if there's a whole group of people like that and someone is new into that team or into that group and isn't comfortable with that, what happens when you're so used to doing it that you don't even realize that you might be hurting someone by collaborating in this hacking way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, different people are open to different things and get upset with different things versus other people who get flattered by it, you know? And that's so much a cultural thing, too. One of the things we're going to be sharing about later has to do with music. And when you think about collaboration as it enters music, and I've shared about on the show before, those musicians that are creating music from all around the world, and they'll contribute their track of their instrument, and it just turns into this beautiful collaborative work of music. It's so fun. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So if you're trying to convince, you're in your persuasion mode... And you're trying to convince the reluctant that it is worth risking the cultural barriers. It is worth risking the power and the hierarchy dynamics that are hard to rid ourselves of. What do you tell us are the benefits of collaboration? Well, but before before you talk about the benefits of collaboration, I think you need to talk about very specific kinds of collaboration. Sure. Um, right. So I was recently at the e-learning Africa conference. And I talked about in scholarship, you can collaborate on your teaching. So where you're either co-teaching with someone, which I do regularly, or you're taking a part of your course and doing something with someone outside of the course altogether. And I do that too. Or you collaborate on research. So you're doing research or you're writing together or something like that. Or you collaborate on professional development. So where any kind of professional development, like you create a conference together or whatever, or you collaborate on learning together, just, you know, Because academics never stop learning, right? So these are very different things because the kinds of risks you take and the kinds of things that you put forward are different. And then you can do this thing where you do research with someone on just like this one paper and then you never talk to them again if you want. Or there are other things that you would do, you know, on a more long-term sustainable basis. If we're talking about teaching specifically, let's start with that one. Is that good? Yeah. Shall we start with that one? (laughs) Sounds good. Um, I remember in my early teaching days, uh, the first time I ever taught a course that was part of a credit, you know, just, it wasn't for a degree, but it was part of credit. It was at Rice University. I was teaching English as a second language or a foreign language, and I'd never taught English to a group of people who don't speak Arabic before. And that's very important when you're teaching a new language to people who don't speak your, who don't all speak the same language, then translation is not on the table at all, you know? Uh, And it was my first time doing that. And I remember that the, you know, I knew I was teaching which course and which level one day before I was teaching and I got the books like one day before. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one of the good things about that institution is that all the teachers shared their material in this shared drive and there was a shared room that we all used. So you could all talk in between and there were these slightly more experienced teachers who were available to help mentor me. That, and I was, that was only for like a semester. When I came to, to Egypt and started teaching more regularly, I always thought found that I always needed someone to talk to about my teaching. Like, there was always something that I was wondering, you know, what should I do next? Oh, this happened today, and what does it mean? And 
I don't know if I'm assuming other teachers have those questions, but teaching is usually thought of as an isolated profession where you don't usually do that. (laughs) I mean, like I got the manure award because I shared a teaching failure. (laughs) I'm very open to teaching, to sharing my teaching (laughs) failures. It helps. And I think the more people who share these failures, the more likely you are to realize that you're normal and, and these things happen and to learn from other people's mistakes as well as your own. And what I realized working with mentors is that they helped me do that. I sought those mentors. It wasn't something that was offered to me when I came back. It was just something that I sought for myself. But that's a hierarchical kind of relationship. You know, it's someone with much more experience than you and you're seeking their advice and so on. But now what I do, I I co-teach a course on creativity. My co-teacher is a really good friend of mine whose name is the same as my daughter's. Her name is Huda. We work together at the Center for Learning and Teaching, which is my main job, but we also co-teach this course. And what we realized, both of us working together, is that even though we teach separate modules... We get to talk a lot, first of all, about the students and how to deal with particular students who are, you know, need certain things or motivate in different ways that usually nobody, even a mentor has because they don't know that student, right? They would never really know the dynamics of that particular class. And then we also collaborate on thinking about assignments for each other's modules and and like small trips or experiences that we can offer the students. And it's sort of, it's enriched my teaching a lot because... It gives me more ideas for my teaching than I would get if I was just doing it on my own, and it supports me when something goes wrong. And also, it has the added advantage that if I have to go somewhere for a day, she can take over that class and vice versa. And then collaborating with people outside of the class altogether, I, I often do some stuff on Twitter with my class, and I love doing that for my teaching because it offers the students... It just opens up the student's mind that, you know, I'm not the only expert on this thing, and I'm not really necessarily the best expert on this thing, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to seek help from somewhere else. And there are other students doing the same thing that you're doing, and maybe you can learn from each other. And, and that sort of opens the window of my class to, um, to what is possible, and I think it gives them more ideas than what they would get on their own. So, yeah, it's, it's more about just expanding your horizons altogether, you know? How do you see the role of an educator changing then when we are focused on creating learning through collaboration? I mean, I think it's also, it also depends on what kind of collaboration you're asking your students to do. Mm-hmm. Because um, I have a team that I work with at Center for Learning and Teaching, and we were giving a workshop recently about interaction and collaboration online. And there are so many different ways of doing that kind of thing. It's so many different educator roles that you can have. You can have very, very structured collaboration where you tell each person what their role should be. And some people think that that's a good idea when students are younger. I, on the other hand, I'd like to give them a lot of freedom to figure out what they need to do, but then help them reflect on on that collaboration. And I'd be there to listen and, and to facilitate, but not not to necessarily prescribe how they want to go about it. And they will make mistakes and they can learn from them. I'd, I'd rather give them that freedom and then and then help them recover from it than to sort of overly structure it. I think the main role of the educator, I think, if you want your students to collaborate, is to really provide them with something where collaboration is valuable. So don't, you know, not to develop an assignment that really just needs one or two people and tell them they can be a group of four. And then, and then they'll complain of people free writing or whatever. Well, you know, because, you know, it needs to be an assignment that needs four people to get it done or, or something that, that really would benefit from a diversity of students or whatever. I mean, and again, this is another thing, like some educators would on purpose try to put uh, a diverse group of people in one group or similar people in one group. And I, and that would depend for me on the kind of assignment you're doing. So when I was teaching teachers, 
sometimes it would make sense that all the language teachers develop something together and all the science teachers develop something different together because, you know, that kind of collaboration might not make sense for certain projects. And then other projects, I would let the ones from the same school collaborate together and the ones, or some other times, I would just let them choose whoever they want because it wouldn't matter. And so I think the, the design of the assignment and the way you design your assessments is what matters that's the teacher role in the collaboration itself. And the assessment, again, is, you know, how important is the collaboration process itself for you as a teacher versus the product of what they produce, you know, what they actually produce. And my students, for the first time this semester, realized that I never actually grade them on their product. I never give them a grade on how good the game, they, they produce educational games. I don't have a grade for how good the game is. I have grades for how they've thought about the process. I have grades for the blog posts that they write in between and how they respond to feedback and how they create a, a making of the game sort of final multimedia project and how they reflect on their role and what they've learned creating the game. But there's no grade for the game itself mm. because I care more about their learning than what they are able to come up with. And the last thing I ask them to do is what would you have done if you had more time? Because a semester is never enough because you can always do better. And it, it really matters that the students can see that they can do things better because the last thing they do in the class is that they play test the game for like the second or third time with an audience that's never seen it before. And so they should be learning something new up until that last moment. You know what I mean? And they should be looking forward to doing more if they could have. I've heard you talk about these games or I have uh, read your words about these games and it seems so intriguing. I want to come play a game. <laughs> <laughs> They write about them on their blogs and then they, uh, they get feedback and improve it. And, and like this semester, they got feedback from really wonderful people like Remy Holden, who does, who teaches similar things. They've had feedback from people like Anna Salter before. And that's, that's because I collaborate with these people on so many different levels that they can then help my students very directly in this, in this sense. So, For people who may not know about it, what is virtually connecting? Okay, that's my favorite collaboration. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I should have just so, said, what's your favorite collaboration? <laughs> <laughs> so um, virtually connecting um, is something I co-founded with Rebecca Hogue uh, a year and a bit ago. And basically what it is, is it's a way to enliven virtual participation at conferences. It started out at ET4 Online in 2015. I was on the steering committee and I had five papers accepted into that conference and I couldn't go in person. And it wasn't just about presenting those papers or whatever. I wanted to be there. I had participated on Twitter in a lot of conferences and it was great, but it wasn't enough. And I had so many friends going. I thought I was going to be able to make it and I couldn't. And Rebecca and I were in conversation about that. And she said, well, I could be your buddy on site and connect you via video to people there and they can talk to you. And we tried that out um, and we... Because for very funny reasons, we ended up using Google Hangouts on air because technically that was the easiest one for me to, to put on YouTube immediately after it was done without having to upload because my upload speed is very slow. Uh, so what we ended up doing was having these conversations between me and people at a conference. Um, but because we're using Google Hangouts on air, we could live stream them and record them so that other people could watch. And because Google Hangouts allows you to have up to 10 people, we started inviting other people into that conversation. And then we started realizing that it was fun for people other than myself, right? And so what we've done since then is that whenever there's a conference that we're interested in or someone we know is interested in, we try to see if there's someone on site and someone virtually who, who would like to host them. And then we invite anyone else 
virtually to join. They know who's the person on site that we're going to talk to. And they can have that hallway conversation with a person because conferences that live stream, is, it's great that you can watch a, you know, a conference session online, but you miss out the interaction of being at a conference and just having these informal social conversations with people. And that's what virtually connection, connecting is. It brings those conversations to people who can't be there in person. And by doing that, it sort of breaks one of the barriers in academia, because the kinds of people who constantly go to conferences are not the graduate students, they're not the adjuncts, they're not the international scholars. And by bringing them through virtually connecting, you allow that kind of interaction to happen. You allow people like me to have a voice in the field, whereas otherwise, you know, having that voice through your blog or through your writing is very different than being able to converse directly in a, in a regular way with, with other people. And the collaboration behind virtually connecting is we're a team of what, more than 60 people who make this happen by deciding, oh, this is the team that's working on this conference. Let's contact these people and we find out who knows the person so they can contact and let's all promote it and let's all invite other people who might want to join that conversation. And we ourselves are a community now. It's almost like we were just talking about this, um, Autumn and Rebecca and me. It's almost like an ongoing connectivist MOOC, but it's not a MOOC because it's not a course and it's not massive, but it's, it's this ongoing connection and building of personal learning networks going on all the time. And it stopped being about me at all wanting to be at a conference. It started being about opening these opportunities for anybody who's interested and having different teams of people working on it. I have not gone to very many conferences in my academic experience, but more recently I have been able to go to more. And my new tactic is to not try to attend all of the sessions. I think I get the most out of them when I attend perhaps even less than half and that in-between time is the time to make those personal connections and some of the deeper conversations about what we're all learning and reflecting on. And I did get to do that at the OLC Innovate Conference back in you were at April. Innovate? I didn't realize you were at Innovate. I was. Nobody yeah. told us Innovate. We would have loved to virtually connect with connect with you. <laughs> yeah. I actually was I was on one of the virtually connecting sessions and I fell victim to the hierarchy and power from a not from a true legitimate power, but a more expertise. I was so intimidated by the people. I was very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but it is one of those I'd like to increase my own confidence that I do have something to contribute. That's something that I'll be working on in the future. But anyway, I got to talk to Carl Moore, who was on the show recently. We just we talked for a couple of hours after the conference actually had concluded. And I, I take away more from that one conversation than many of this, the formal session. So it's great that then you can extend it's not just the people who physically could be there, but you have more of a sense of equality to broadening that conversation. But still, I know sometimes it's in the sessions and then sometimes it's out. It's like recreating yeah. the conference, but extending the tentacles of it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you can get both, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's also this, uh, this other thing is that not everyone can walk up to a keynote speaker and have a conversation with them at a conference. Mm -hmm. But virtually connecting allows you to do that. Whether you're on-site or virtually, you can join that conversation. And a lot of people on-site say that they like to join the on-site conversation so that they get that extra time with a keynote or who's a, usually a superstar. But we also have other participants who aren't keynotes and it's still fun. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was just thinking recently I was at a, I went to Rome for one day to attend a conference where um, I co-presented with Jim Groom, which I need to talk about in a second. The the other key, Jim was a keynote speaker, and there was another keynote speaker that I hadn't attended her keynote because it was the day before I got there. 
But there was a, I had like a one hour of downtime throughout that day. And I spent time with her, that other keynote speaker, Lori and Jim and a few other people. And that was the best time in the whole conference. And I hadn't attended her talk, mm -hmm. but it was really still a very valuable conversation that I could have with her. And uh, I came out with a lot because I got to talk to her and, you know, because, you know, it's a keynote, you don't get to ask a lot of questions. There's usually time for two or three questions. But if you sit and talk to a person, then they can answer your specific questions and have, you can give and take and they can get to know you. And then you have a relationship that extends beyond the conference, which I think is the most important thing. Yeah. Like Jesse Stamo was saying this at a recent virtually connecting session at um, DHSI. And he was, and you know, the Digital Pedagogy Lab also do institutes kind of like the Digital Humanities Institute, which is like a one week of intensive working on a particular thing. And he was saying, it's not the week that's the point. That's the red herring. The week just helps you form connections so that you later can continue collaborating and doing something together. And that's what I think is the thing about virtually connecting is that a lot of the, a lot of the things we've been talking about recently, Rebecca and, and Autumn and myself, is that people meet other people through virtually connecting. And because they've had this less formal conversation with them, they can, they are feel more able to then talk to them and they get to know them and they do all sorts of things together. It's so true. I know one of the other collaborations we wanted to talk about was the MLA Commons Digital Pedagogy in the Humanities. And if that wasn't enough of a mouthful, the, the uh, parenthetical is Concepts, Models, and Experiments. And I know that you are doing some collaboration on this. So would you like to take it from here and maybe share a little bit more about what is this tool? And I, I don't think sure. it's restricted just the value is not restricted just to the humanities. I don't teach in the humanities and I find a tremendous benefit in going in yeah. and navigating the site. So tell us a little bit more about it and then how you yeah. are collaborating. I, mean, I, I think, I think it's beneficial to anyone who's doing any digital work uh, and maybe even not digital work, but it's, 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 it's really cool because different people are creating different keywords and not a very, you know, they're not like really long book chapters, right? So there are people curating um, uh, a keyword, giving examples of how, you know, if you want to focus on that keyword and you're teaching something digital, then these are some resources that you could use in your teaching or examples of how other people have done it in their teaching. And the, the way the, the, I think of it as a book, but I'm, it's not really a book, I guess, but it's, it's done on GitHub and, and then there's, they have an open peer review process. So the editors look at it and then there's an open peer review period where anybody can read the stuff and give them feedback and comments and so on. And there's one of the one of the keywords from a couple of times, there are phases. So a couple of phases ago, there was a keyword failure, by the way. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the manure episode. And then I'm collaborating with Mia Zamora on the network keyword. And I think that's very relevant to the episode today about collaboration because first of all, me and I are collaborating on it, but also one of the first things we did before writing our keyword is to actually write posts on Prof Hacker and the DML blog, inviting our personal learning networks to help us curate the network keyword. And we, we sort of gave them where we were thinking about the book, uh, about the, the keywords. And these are the different understandings of the word network that we were thinking of. And what kind of resources or examples did they think would be best? We gave examples of what we thought was good, but we opened a Google Doc and allowed people to just submit stuff. And the thing with that is obviously some people will think of something that is not relevant, but for the most part, a lot of what they've given us is really, really useful and valuable. And, and there were a couple of things that came out of it. And so this is the value of collaboration, right? One of the things that came out of it is don't just talk about online networks. What about offline networks? What about hybrid networks, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's really important, like to not talk about networking as if it's something that social media invented. <laughs> it was already, it already existed beforehand. And then how does it 
How does this hybridity work beyond just the online or just the face-to-face? I think it came out from that discussion that people reminded us of also the very early days of the internet and e-learning and what was called network learning before we had connectivism. And so again, it's just like when you open up something like that, and people are so willing to, to help you with it. That's the thing. I think a lot of people who haven't tried doing that can't imagine how many people would jump in and help you for free just for the promise of attribution. And I don't think they're doing it for attribution. They're just doing because you asked and they can. You it's know? So, There's just a lot of people like that. It's so exciting to see, to go and look. I'm just going to read off a few of them just to so people who might not have heard of it before, have a sense of the depth and breadth here. Annotation, blogging, collaboration, design, gender, praxis, project management, race, sexuality, video. And I'm only reading, I think, 10% of them. There's just, I mean, in any one of those that you might click on could benefit your teaching. I mean, they have all these. I think part of it is because it it mixes theory with practice too, as you said earlier, because we're actually going to be able to see how we could put this into practice in our teaching. It's really fun. And I mean, one of the cool things is that with so many keywords, it's very easy to find something. So we have network as a keyword and we have community as a keyword. And when we were writing, the community one has already been published, I think. And so when we went to do our, we went and read what they were writing and try to, you know, be more selective about what we're doing so that we can differentiate between what's a community and what's a network. And that really makes a difference in collaboration, by the way. So going back to our topic specifically is that, you know, one of the things about a community is that it's usually more closely knit and people know each other and it's it's more more of an affinity type of space and everything than a network, which could be more loosely connected and not everyone in that network necessarily needs to know each other, but they're part of the network, so they're connected in some way. And, and so... Um, I was thinking of a couple of recent collaborations of mine that that are pretty hybrid in the sense that I know the people online, but then we did something face-to-face together. So one of those was um, Digital Pedagogy Lab Cairo. So this is done by the hybrid pedagogy people who are now called Digital Pedagogy Lab. And so people like Jesse Stommel and Sean Michael Morris and Bonnie Stewart, I've known for like two and a bit years online. And I was able to, to invite them over to Cairo to have this big event over here. And during that event, I had uh, I co-facilitated a forum with Bonnie and I co-facilitated a session with Jesse. And obviously, we collaborated to make all this happen, right? But the fact that Jesse and I, could, who had never met each other in person before, could just sit together for a couple of hours, get our workshop together, and then give it together comfortably and be able to bounce ideas off each other throughout that event when I was, whenever we were in the same room in the session, that is amazing. And, and people don't really usually believed that we'd never met face-to-face before. I mean, something similar just happened to me again with um, Jim Groom when I went to American University of Rome and we gave a session together, which was very interactive. Um, and again, we, we, you know, Jim and I know each other from Twitter and from virtually connecting, but we don't actually talk synchronously a lot. And we just met synchronously a couple of times to when I was inviting him to do the keynote and collaborating with the conference people to help him design his keynote in a way that was relevant to the attendees. But then also just meeting a couple of times to prepare the, the session and then giving it just makes this, this hybridity aspect of it was, was really special with how comfortable I was giving that session with him in, in ways that I was in some ways more comfortable because we understood each other's minds in some ways more than people who work with me face-to-face because when you're face-to-face, you don't say all your ideas out loud but you, if you blog them and you write them all the time, then the people who read you 
know a lot of what's happening inside your head rather than just what you choose to say in the limited time and space you have in face-to-face, if that makes sense. Oh, it absolutely does. When I was talking about the experience that I had on virtually connecting, that will get easier as more of that hybrid type of thing happens and it happens in different formats and sometimes it's live and sometimes it's asynchronous. I can totally see what you're saying. Mm. I'm still amazed that you were, I mean, I don't know if the right word is intimidated. Uh, I'm still amazed that you, you felt that way. I always think of you as a really confident person. I remember that Jim Groom was one of the people who was on the session. And I remember thinking, I have nothing to say if he's in the quote unquote room. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I have to get over that. That's you know something that we can all work on because I think part of it is I'm trying to think of the correlation between people talk about honesty. Honesty isn't just that what I say is true, but it's also that I share the truth. Sometimes we talk about honesty. It isn't just that I tell the truth, but it's also that I have the courage to speak up. So it's not that all the words that are coming out of my mouth are true, but Mm -hmm. that I'm sort of forcing the words to come out if the truth hasn't been made present already. And I sort of see that with this too, that you do have to have not a form of confidence in one's self because we're, I'm trying to, I've been really good at shedding that off in academia. I think academia <laughs> that's just a messy proposition if we're trying to win academia's game because I'm I'm never going to win that game. But the, <laughs> the game that what you believe in so much for learning and for teaching, if that doesn't get said, I think you're not doing your responsibility as an educator. Yeah. This I is agree. the point in the show where we get to move to recommendations. And I mentioned to you that I'm going to be recommending something musical today and... When I play it, you won't get to hear it, I guess. <laughs> I have to ask my husband about that because I'm wondering maybe if our setup here, because I thought everyone was able to hear it, but I'm going to start playing it and then I'll talk about it as it plays. The music that everyone except Maha is listening to right now is from Maggie Rogers, and she is an NYU student. And the quote unquote audience is the other music students at NYU, but also a famous musician, Farrell Williams, who I think is most famous for his song called Happy that was in the movie Despicable Me. I think I'm getting that right. He is an artist in residence at NYU and got to hear her music live. And I'm linking to this in the show notes. I hope everyone will go and look at those Uh, because it's not just hearing the music but it's also seeing the expression on Farrell's face as he hears her music because he's just completely captivated by it and it is incredibly captivating music and it's just beautiful to watch the expression on his face and then it's very beautiful to see him encourage her as a musician as her teacher at the end and it just spoke to me so much about music the beauty of it it spoke so much about teaching about learning and I suggest people go click on the link and check that out and Maha what do you have to suggest to the listeners today so I have a couple of recommendations Um, one is definitely try virtually connecting (laughs) you can go to virtuallyconnecting.org and check out which conferences we're going to be at soon if you're in any pedagogical field, you'll f- probably find something of interest to you. And you can watch if you're not comfortable joining sessions, but there's always space for people to to ask to join sessions. So I hope people will come because it's it's some of the best learning you can get because one, one graduate student recently wrote about how as a graduate student, you don't have insight into how academics behave and how they are like when they let their guard down, when they're unplugged. And that 
that virtually connecting offers you that. And then it makes you feel like other academics are actually just human, just like you. And you can start to imagine what, what that might be like. And to have conversations with these kinds of people early on is, is really helpful. So especially for younger people or early career academics, I think I would definitely recommend virtually connecting. Um, and the other thing is just speaking of hybrid collaborations, I'm after, after we had Digital Pedagogy Lab Cairo, um, Sean and Jesse asked me to become the international director for Digital Pedagogy Lab. And so they're having an institute in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia in August. And that institute is a lar much larger one than the Cairo one. It's It's got four tracks and, and all that. And they've got a virtually connecting fellow who's Autumn Keynes, who's one of the principal members of virtually connecting. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to have a good amount of hybridity in the conference. So it's a digital pedagogy thing that's on site. And it totally makes sense to have a digital aspect to it. And so there's that collaboration where we're trying to have a lot of hybrid sessions there. So if you can make it on site, there are awesome people there like Kathy Davidson and Tressy um, McMillan Cottom and um, and Amy Collier and Lee Scalor Bassett and Martha Burtis and I hear Audrey Waters is gonna be there too. Yes, Audrey is one of my favorite people as well. A lot of really, really wonderful people there and Jesse and Sean of course. But if you can't make it on site we're going to be virtually connecting from there and trying to, to bring in as much as we can of that. So, and trying to internationalize it. That's the part of the international director part is that I'm trying to bring in people from different parts of the world to be able to, to have a voice in that event, even if they can't be there on site. I was quite salivating when I read the description for it and I'm not going to be able to make it in person this year. And I'm so glad to know that there'll be opportunities to connect in other ways. Yeah. And then there was one last year. Hopefully there'll be another one next year. They're trying to have an international one every year. The first one was in Cairo. There's one in Prince Edward Island in Canada this year, but in the future, they'll have at least one outside of the U.S. So hopefully, and, and obviously another one in the U.S. inshallah. So hopefully you'll have other opportunities. But for this year, if you can't make it, there's virtually connecting. And if you can, there's still a few spaces uh, left as we speak. I don't know by the time the podcast goes out, but because some of the tracks are closed, but maybe others. And the keynotes will be live streamed and I think public. So if you live nearby, I mean, that's not the case for you, but <laughs> if you live near Virginia, uh, you might want to drive over for a keynote or two. Oh, yeah. Well, Maha, thank you so much for investing your time, not just today, but your time in all of us. You are a master educator and someone who teaches every day of your life. And thanks for all of your contributions to our work and the model that you provide for collaboration. It was just so fun to get to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I don't know necessarily that I'm a master or whatever, but I think I'm a master <laughs> learner. I think I'm a good learner. And I think, you know, if you want to keep learning, I think collaboration is, is necessary because you need to learn from somebody and with somebody. Yeah. So couldn't agree more. Thank you, Bonnie. It was so great to get to have a conversation with Maha today. This is episode 108 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast. If you would like to look at the show notes, and trust me, there's going to be a lot of clickable things in there, you can go to teachinginhighered.com slash 108. You're also welcome to make comments there or tweet to me at B-O-N-N-I 208 or to Maha at B-A-L-I underscore M-A-H-E. 
A, but we'll also have links to those things in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 108. And if you don't want to remember to go to download and look at teaching notes and all that stuff, just subscribe to our weekly updates. And you can do that at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And that way you'll get those automatically coming into your inbox once a week, along with most weeks, an article about teaching or productivity written by me. And I look forward to having you connect in some way or another, whether that's on Twitter or through the email updates, or we even have a Slack channel now with a number of people from the community. And it's really been fun to kind of have that open collaboration, but also there's enough of a privacy sense where we're not completely out to the open public admitting our failures, et cetera. So feel free to get in touch with me if you'd like to be added to that Slack group. And just thanks so much for listening. As always, if you have suggestions for future topics or future episodes, you could do that at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And love to see those reviews coming in on iTunes. That's helping more people discover the show and helping us overtake the Pirates podcast, the history of Pirates. I have no ill will toward the people that produce that podcast other than a fine sense of competition that I'd like to overtake them at some point in the coming weeks. I probably shouldn't have admitted that here on the show, but... I just feel so open now after talking to my, I feel like I should just say it. So go up and leave a review or put a rating. You could just put a number of stars up there and that'll help more people discover the show. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.